The last 20 years have seen an explosion of cool tech, shiny digital apps, and progressive business models, but not all have migrated successfully to traditional banking. Have we lingered too long in the glittering halls of cutting edge? Have we forgotten the real goals of reliable, trustworthy, and functional banking? Is it time to find the real magic in building a bank that works? Welcome to Functional Banking Magic, a podcast that aims to tell the stories of the magic in a bank that works. Hello, and welcome to the launch episode of Functional Banking Magic. I'm Liz Lumley, Deputy Editor of The Banker, and I we have a wonderful, wonderful first chapter here for everyone today. This is the Ladies of The Banker, and we're going to talk about all of our experiences with technology and innovation at banks, and hopefully we'll find a little bit of magic in banks that actually work. <laughs> so we're going to go around the table, and I want uh, I want people to introduce themselves. So over here to my to my right. Hi, Liz. So I'm Marie Kemplay, the Bankers Investment Banking and Capital Markets Editor. Uh, and I'm Joy McKnight, the editor of The Banker. Um, but I used to be the technology and transaction banking editor before that. Uh, and I've had a long career in covering uh, banking technology from a lot of different uh, angles. Wonderful. And Computer Weekly as well, which we'll hear about later. Yeah, that was a very long time ago, actually. <laughs> so I have to say, um, I have to watch myself a little bit because I, as the moderator, I put together some of these questions based on my personal experiences. So I have to I have to hold back and, well, I, I, might, I, might, I might not be able, to, be able to tell my stories. But the very first question I wanted to ask both of you, since we're all journalists here, is do you remember the first tech-focused story or a significant tech-focused story that you wrote? So, Marie, I'm going to start with you. Yeah, and it's funny what's Joyce saying about her backstory. So mm-hmm. I, I obviously write about investment banking and capital markets now, but in previous roles, I was a lot more focused on the consumer end, let's say. So my first piece, and it's funny you asking this question, I really had to rack my brain and go <laughs> back in time. Uh, it was actually about contactless payment cards, and it was so quaint and cute, you know, thinking back. This was like, I don't know, eight, seven or eight years ago or something. Mm-hmm. And that was when the limit was £15. And there was all this paranoia that you were going to be on the tube and someone would have some kind of device that they could steal your details. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> steal your details, you know, or like you'd be yes. in the cafe and they'd hack into your card somehow and get, you know. And it just it just made me realise, you know, this. And actually, a lot of people didn't want these contactless cards. They mm. got them and then they were like, oh, no, this, this is not what I want, you know. And, mm. But, you know, to, to your point about this this podcast being about innovation, it just made me think sometimes banks are trying to innovate and people don't actually really mm. want it, you know. Mm. Although, of course, a lot of people did want these contactless payment cards and it's great and we're so used to that now. And I think the limit in the UK at least now is £100, mm. right? So things have moved on a lot and you can obviously tap your phone or tap your little watch or whatever. Yeah. But back then, this was like, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? This is like crazy stuff. <laughs> I think you know? I think Dave Birch, the well-known uh, person in the industry, tweeted about the equipment that they would have needed to hack your contactless yeah. card. You know, you would have you would have kind of known it was happening. <laughs> I, remember, and I remember looking up all these products, you know, I, we didn't recommend mm. any of them. But just for research, you know, you can get all these wallets with, you know, tinfoil. <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah. this is really mm. not. Like... Your own tinfoil hat for a card. <laughs> exactly. <yeah. laughs> like, oh, God, people. <laughs> Joy, what about you? Well, I have to say, my first story goes back a long <laughs> way. Um, and to 
be honest, I had to Google myself <laughs> to find out uh, sort of one of, you know, one of the earlier ones. But it was when I was back freelancing, actually, for Computer Weekly. I was brought in to do some, uh, you know, some cover work for people and things like that. And um, so my first story that I, you know, could find uh, was in February 2001. Uh, and it was about uh, banks seeing profit in open code. So it was a story about... Um, Dresner Kleinwort Wasserstein, um, who released the source code to a software application uh, that it claims will help uh, answer its client systems integration problems. So it was called Open Adapter Middleware, um, and it was available freely on the internet uh, to clients and competitors alike. So it was sort of that beginning of the big Openness, open source. Yeah. Uh, yeah, open uh, open sourcing the technology and allowing other people to to use the code. Mm, yeah, no, that um, opening up the banks is a huge huge part of mm. uh, innovation and technology. What banks are going through. Um, I did warn you, I have my own stories. Um, <laughs> but anyway, this is this is back in the nineties, mid nineties. One of the first stories I wrote, um, a guy was d- describing his software application, which had a GUI interface, mm. and I spelled it G O O E Y. <laughs> And my editor called like me in, Mr. David Longobardi, and he said, Liz, tell me what a GUI interface is. Sticky, and, um, sticky one, yeah, tacky. Yeah, and um, I explained it, and he went, do you mean a graphical user interface? And, and I actually looked at him. I was 22, okay? And um, I said, but that's, he called it GUI. Um, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> we all learn. We all learn. Um, so I've got I've got a provocative question here. I'm going to go to Joy for this one. Um, we've all been to conferences. We all went to events. We've all had a drink at the end of the evening. Have you ever had a a long night of the soul with someone from a bank? Uh, well, <laughs> I've definitely had those kind of conversations after a few drinks. I have to say, um, maybe not a long night, but definitely an interesting discussion. And I do remember one, um, and it was with someone who was in the, uh, you know, IT of a big of a large UK bank, uh, and they were going through all sorts of restructuring. Um, and I just remember him ta- talking about the story. And, you know, obviously at the time, this was just after the financial crisis, a lot of banks were going through mass restructuring. It had been a couple of years. And he said that every six months he gets a new boss. Uh, and so in actual fact, he was just waiting, right, for the n- the next new boss because each new boss would come in, would tell them this is what they wanted them to do. They would start working on it. And then six months later, they would have another new boss that would say, rip up all of that stuff, start all this again, do something completely new. And it had just gone on for years. And he just said, you know, that he really suffered from change fatigue. Mm. And I think you need to think about when that's what you need to think about when you're talking about innovation and everything. Like, And right now we're going through such a fast pace of change. Yeah. And it's one thing to bring customers on that journey with you, but you also have to remember to bring your staff on that journey. And, you know, switching bosses every six months that have completely different visions is, doesn't help with that, actually. Difficult, yeah. Yeah, I think I think there's a a, a, li- a life cycle for a CIO. It's usually 18 months. Mm, well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it was interesting. As I said before, I have my own stories. Um, the story I have, it kind of changed the way I viewed banks in a strange way. And it had been a, a while. It was at a, a big conference. And it was around the time it was fintech where people would get on stage and say, banks are all going to be destroyed. Mm. You guys are in trouble. You're all dinosaurs. Mm. Go away. The new people are going to come and take over. And which is fine. 
And then afterwards, I sat down with someone from a, a large international bank, and he said, I wish we could get on stage and defend ourselves. Mm. And we can't. And mm. I know, and we know as journalists, there's corporate communications, there's PR, mm. people that get involved. And he said, they don't understand the environment we're working in. Mm. We're not sitting here in the banks thinking, let's not innovate. Let's mm. not innovate. Let's be dinosaurs. <laughs> let's everyone write checks for the rest of their lives. Um, he's like, they don't understand the work we're trying. You know, and and a lot is said about how, you know, not easy, but how, you know, agile and innovative it is to create products at a startup. And in a perfect world, you know, that is. But what about creating something beautiful in a difficult environment? Mm. And there are a lot of people at banks today that are, are creating things in mm. a difficult, a big, giant oil tanker. Mm. Um, and it really kind of changed the way that I viewed technology and viewed innovation. So that was my, mm. my long night of the soul. I don't know. Do you have any? <laughs> right. <laughs> Maybe not in that same way, but something you said there's just kind of resonated with mm. me because another piece I worked on back in the day was around ATM fraud. And it just <laughs> kind of and kind of bear with me because this so it sounds like I'm talking about something totally different, but it kind of you know talking about that difficult environment and banks compared to fintechs and startups, they have obviously these long-standing responsibilities. I guess mm. for want of a better word, they're so mm. in inherently part of the infrastructure and countries running well and stuff, you know, but fintechs, they don't have to worry about running an ATM network or making sure <laughs> that, you know, in that in that mm. same way. And, and that piece, kind of like to you changing how I um, perceive the industry in a certain way, it just made me realize the, the amount of effort and work that goes into running like an ATM network, it's crazy. Yeah. And just them trying to always keep on top of what the fraudsters are doing, mm. you know, what little device and bit of plastic they're going to try and put in. Okay, well, we'll redesign it for this way. And and all the time, of course, you're managing a transition to a world where people won't necessarily want ATMs, but you still have to have them in a certain because, of course, you've got vulnerable customers mm -hmm. who aren't going to have access to certain payment technology. It's just, yeah, it's it's very difficult, as you say. Mm -hmm. I think people kind of lose sight of that sometimes. Yes, yeah, <laughs> I agree with you. I'm going to stay with you because mm -hmm. I looked you up on LinkedIn. But no, but you used to work at Toynbee mm. Hall, which you know works a lot with financial inclusion. And you mentioned vulnerable customers, mm. and there are a lot of people that still like use cash. And um, there's a lot of talk around financial inclusion in the industry, and but there isn't a lot of you know real change for people who are in very vulnerable mm. situations. Like, what is your view on kind of you know why why does it seem like the industry isn't quite meeting the needs of some of these people. Yeah, it's a really difficult one. And you're right, I did work at Toynbee Hall and I was very lucky to work with a number of colleagues who were, you know, launched some quite groundbreaking at the time initiatives around that. Because I think when I worked there, the whole issue of financial exclusion, financial inclusion was relatively new, mm. I guess, or at least it being articulated in that way, I think was quite mm. new. And it did stick with me my time there because, you see, as you say, it just really brings home to you how important it is to have access to, you know, basic things that a lot of people would take for granted around, you know, bank accounts and, and, and mainstream mm. finance. But having said all that, I do actually have a lot of sympathy for the banks on this one because at the heart of it, there is just this real tension between some pretty a basic issue around ID and verification and, and that side mm. of things. And like the banks think more and more, I think, I think this gets harder you know, there's all the kind of KYC, you know, you like know your client requirements to check actually who is it that I'm dealing with here and they're not trying to 
you know, implement mm. some kind of fraud and stuff. But a lot of the people that are struggling to get access to financial services, they are in difficult situations and maybe they don't have six months worth of utility bills or they don't have a passport or they don't have a driving license, mm. you know, all the very standard ID forms. And I, I think fundamentally that is quite a difficult, you know, it sounds on one level quite easy, but it actually it's very, very difficult to to solve. Um mm. And I think some bank, and, and as I say, I haven't been actively kind of engaged in this space for, for for a while, but so I think some of the banks have tried, you know, you do see initiatives, you know, around this. But when I was at Toynbee Hall, one of the things we worked on was the this thing called like the ID guide and just really trying to get banks to think as laterally as possible about, mm. okay, well, this person is, you know, to my earlier point, okay, they don't have a passport, they don't have a driving license, they don't have utility bills. Well, what do mm. they have? You know, yeah. this person does exist. They do have to interact <laughs> with, you know, they can't just live in an entire Carbon -based bubble. Life form. Yeah. <laughs> so what pieces of paper, what things mm. do they have? And just, you know, trying to meet somewhere in the middle on that. But yeah, mm. I'm I, I'm glad it's not me. Let me put it this way. That has to try and solve that because I think it is very, very mm. challenging, mm. you know. You're talking a lot to my heart. I think you listeners can tell from Joy and myself's accents that we weren't born in this country. <laughs> um, but when I first came uh, to, to Great Britain in 1997, I could not get a bank account because mm. I could, did not have three months' worth of <laughs> utility bills. Yeah. Um, and the, the um, finance director of the company I worked for in New York had to call up a, a UK high street bank and threaten to pull business if they didn't give wow. me a bank account. Wow. She's like, I need to pay her. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's not yeah, it's not just vulnerable people. And it's like yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. I have a job. I, I went to college. <laughs> like yeah. So Joy, I mean I think we Joy when we go to you, I mean, we talked a little bit about this with our, our discussion about, you know, all the cool stuff comes from outside the bank. Mm. And everything inside the bank is uncool. Mm. Um it, do you think that's that's fair? No. no. I don't think it is. But <laughs> but it also like, it is very difficult, uh, and I think Marie touched on it quite a bit, right? The banks are under a lot of regulatory pressure. They have to do things a certain way. Uh, a lot of fintechs can spin things up very quickly um, and get things to market very quickly. Um, and so all of a sudden they can experiment in ways maybe the banks can't. But at the same time, there's a huge amount of transformation happening within the banks. And I think the idea is that, you know, it really comes back to the question around a bank has to work. Mm -hmm. You have to get paid. Your bills have, you know what I mean? All of that kind of stuff. Your bills have to be, you have to be able to pay your bills. When that breaks down, and you can see it in a lot of uh, coverage recently around, you know, <coughs> uh, apps going offline or, you know, uh, mm. online banking going offline and, and things like that. And there's this real outcry from people, obviously, because mm. they can't access their money, right? Um, and so the banks are under a lot of that kind of pressure to deliver. And then they're also dealing with legacy IT systems, mm. you know, and sometimes legacy, legacy mindsets within the culture yeah. of the bank. And so they're going through these big transformation pro, uh, programs at the moment. Um, but I don't think, I, I do think there's a lot of magic, as you say, <laughs> a lot of magic happening inside the banks. Uh, I think they're doing a lot of interesting things. Uh, and they are becoming much faster to market. And they're also partnering Mm. with the fintechs to help them get there as well. Yeah, no, I agree with you very much. Collaboration is the way forward, mm. even though some fintechs don't believe it. But 
but it is. You'll, you'll get there eventually. <laughs> you'll get there. I want to. I want to. I've got two more questions, but I, I want to keep in my my provocative question a little bit. I'm, maybe I'll stick with Joy for this one. We we've been to so many conferences, mm. so many events, sat in stage, and and I realized a few years ago that um, we're a unique bunch of people, journalists, because we sometimes see the same people over and over and over again, and they do the same address over and over and over again <laughs> for a lot of money, um, but. <laughs> No, I'm not bitter. But um, have you ever sat in, in an event at a conference and, and someone's been on stage and you've just rolled your eyes to the back of your head? <laughs> mm, that's a tough one, actually. I think I have a very short memory on any of those kind of uh, things because I've sat through tons. Obviously, I've been to, over the years, been to tons of conferences and things like that. But I guess maybe I, I take it in a different way, uh, take the question in a bit of a different way in terms of when I felt my heart really drop. Mm. Um, and I have to say, it was relatively early on in, in my career, but I'd been covering the Payment Services Directive for a number of years. And I have to say, it wasn't that long, actually. It was probably about three years. But anyways, but I felt like I'd been covering it for a very long time. And it finally it's come like dog to... years, regulation years. It's like dog yeah, years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it finally, P, uh, you know, PSD1, uh, before it was known as PSD1, it was just known as PSD, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it was all sort of wrapping up. It was all coming together, all of this kind of stuff. And then I was at some conference, and they started talking about PSD2, <laughs> and I, I just thought, I don't know if I can, you know. It's bad. Yeah. <laughs> you know, oh, my goodness. There's a whole nother, going to be a whole nother iteration of this. And all of a sudden, I had that moment where, that crystallization moment where you just think to yourself, it never ends. Mm. The regulations never end. They never go away. They morph into something new. Um, and then all of a sudden, you have new regulations coming through. So again, the banks are dealing with all of this mm. as a constant changing environment that they have to adapt to. Mm. I have to say, I always get annoyed when a fintech that has a, a product aimed at consumers is gets on stage and complains about the barrier regulation is to innovation. Mm. And I'm like, you know, the regulations are actually there not to cause you pain. It's to protect the consumer. Mm. Deal yeah. with it, dude, because the banks do. <laughs> <laughs> do you have any? Do you have any stories for me? No. <laughs> not she's really. A very, she's a very, very polite, polite editor. No, Marie. only, mm -hmm. only, well, this is not about actual content, content of, <laughs> but it's just, <laughs> this is just really lame. But, you know, you're talking about rolling eyes, mm -hmm. but, you know, you, you get these fireside chats, don't you? And yes. I was at this conference in Barcelona and it was very warm. And then they, you know, turned on this screen with a picture of a fire <laughs> flickering. And I just thought, we didn't yeah. need, okay, it's like we're all capable of imagining what a fireside chat is. We don't need a, a, t a screen with a, a pretend fire on it. Like, just, but that, like, joy, I, 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 yeah, like joy, I don't really remember the actual <laughs> content very long. But that was just oh. like, okay, all right. Oh, for all event organizers <laughs> everywhere, I feel your pain. Okay, so Regan, I'm going to stay with you because this is our final, our final question. And, and actually, I kind of uh, prepped all of you and said, you know, you, you don't have to just talk about your work. Talk about your personal personal feelings as well. So um, in your definition, what is, what is a bank that just works? <laughs> yeah. I mean, for me, it's one that I don't really notice, right? Mm. And that's, all, that's the real challenge for the banks because, you know, how do you 
to use the horrible word, monetize that, how do you kind of <laughs> engage with people in a way where they don't really notice you? You know, I think it's similar to like my partner, he works in IT. I think it's a similar thing. Like when all the IT is working really well, it's fine. Nobody needs to speak to him. As soon as it's all breaking, mm. you know, they're just blaming him, getting angry. It's kind of like the same with the mm. banks, you know. Mm. If it's all going well, I just don't really notice they're there. And I think that is really, really difficult for them because I think a lot of the time there's this idea that they should be with people throughout their kind of you mm. know, life and all those kind of mm. key life events, you know, like buying a house or retiring, you know, pay, all these kind of things. But if they try and insert themselves in a way that's not welcome, that's just kind of gets my back up, you know. So mm. it's, it's really how can they yeah enable you to kind of do all your day-to-day -day stuff and support you at the moments when you need it without being too pushy and trying to insert mm. themselves it's like parenting a teenager yeah <laughs> that i may be saying from experience yeah <laughs> that, that, yeah that's that's really mm. that's really challenging isn't it mm. so, yeah. yeah what do you what do you think joy no i totally agree mm. but i do like the idea of um and i know banks like dbs are thinking mm. that as well in terms of how do you serve the total customer life cycle mm. um, and, uh, you know, and really be there in those times of need. And I think that goes for the corporate life cycle mm. as well in terms of, uh, you know, really stepping in and providing those services. But I think you're 100% correct in mm. terms of you can't be too intrusive in that. Mm. But it would be great if when you were looking for a mortgage, not only were they offering you a mortgage, but I think like RBC, the Royal Bank of Canada does this a little bit and mm. some of the Canadian banks, are, you know, they also like give you options in terms of, uh, you know, uh, house builders or, you know, uh, you know, um, maybe deals on mm. washer and dryers that you need for your home or something like that on the appliances and things. So um, it's maybe offering it up, but obviously not being too pushy. Mm. But I also think that um, banks are now looking at how they serve the community as mm. well. And I think that's really important. And this isn't really a techie story, but I just found it was super interesting. I was in Barcelona and I was talking to Kasha Bank, and they a, they had launched this sort of millennial digital only um, bank called Imagine Bank for that generation. But then they also took one of their branches in central Barcelona and turned it into more of a community center, uh, which gave people like free rooms that they could book and then free Wi-Fi. And they had a cafe in it and they had local artists um, you know, having small exhibitions. They had gaming rooms downstairs, which used to be the vault <laughs> <laughs> wow. and things like that. But like, so they were sort of like, you know, and all of it was free and things and people could access it. Um, customers, maybe it was just customers, but, you know, people could ac access it. And I, I think, again, that's creating, like thinking you have all this real estate in terms of the branch network and a lot of Banks are now trying to get rid of that. But if you think about that real estate and how to turn those into more of community-based centers that can actually help the community as a whole, I think that's really innovative, actually. Mm -hmm. Maybe not totally, obviously, techie innovative, but No, still. no, no. I'm, I'm really glad that you had that as, as your final statement because almost every tech conversation I have winds up with culture and people mm. so yeah so no i think i think that's that's a really good good place to end on mm. but uh joy and marie thank you very much for launching functional banking magic excellent well thank you liz that's <laughs> yeah, fantastic 
Hello, and welcome to this second part of the launch episode of Functional Banking Magic. Once again, I'm Liz Lumley, Deputy Editor of The Banker, and I have two payment geeks, payment nerds with me uh, for, for our chapter two of our episode. And before I have them introduce themselves, I have to warn you, um, I tend to pick people uh, for events that I do and articles I write that have said something that made me think in the past few weeks uh, that I thought was quite interesting. And both of these people, I brought them on because they said something that made me think, oh, that's that's quite, it's quite, come on, I want to know more. So um, I'm going to turn first uh, to my friend, Teresa. Please introduce yourself. Hello, I'm Liz's payment nerd friend, Teresa. <laughs> I'm from Payment Matters. And what I do in my day job is to work with bank and technology companies to shape customer propositions and strategy. Um, I'm also an ambassador for the Payments Association. And something else that's very close to my heart is equality and diversity. And I'm on the EMEA board for Women in Payments. Excellent. Thank you. And coming in and very pandemic friendly online, Alessandro, please introduce yourself. Hi, I'm glad to be considered a nerd. Uh, <laughs> that's new. Um, so um, I've been working in payments for many, many decades. I started off with PayPal, then PayPoint and Lloyd's as the CEO of digital banking, and more recently with PayPoint, with pay, sorry, with Pacemakers, which is the firm that we've created to help companies um, innovate through partnering. So finding the right company to work with. So imagine executive search for companies. Um, I'm also on the board of a bank, Cash Plus Bank. Uh, I write. Uh, and I think, Liz, unfortunately, you've, had, you've been on receiving the end of stuff that I write. <laughs> it's and, very good. <laughs> uh, well, thank you very much. And I'm just very passionate about how financial services is transforming and changing. And uh, I'm not shy about telling people my views. We know that. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on, Alessandra. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. I'm actually going to start off with you. I mean, the, the, the whole theme of this overall podcast series is, is finding that magic in, in a bank that works. And, and I'm kind of putting you in a, in a member of a certain type of club that's been going on for the past few years, which is bringing people from cool tech um, into a traditional bank. Now, I suppose PayPal is pretty much in the financial services bucket, but it's kind of that yeah. big big Silicon Valley, you know, the PayPal mafia type organization that, that everyone sort of uh, talks about. So I, when you came into, and everyone knows Lloyd's Banking Group uh, in 2011, you know, what kind of, what was one of the first things that you noticed? Um, well, there are two things that I thought were, were interesting. One is the thing that attracted me to them, which is the fact that they had a very large customer base and they really cared about uh, being part of society and they really felt that that was an important component of what they were delivering. Um, and that was the, the, ha the good side and the objectives that they had were really keen. So the objective, the, the abstract objectives that are helping their customers were very good. The execution I thought was needed improvement and, and that's why I thought it was good for me to contribute to them. Um, I think their perspective was very much driven by um, their view of themselves as legacy players. So the legacy that they had, they saw it as a very positive element, which is or, um, about being part of being part of this community and doing things in a certain way and therefore earning the trust of the community. But at the same time, these legacy dimensions prevented them from uh, adopting certain things that were probably obviously right for their customers. And I thought that the opportunity there of having a big player that has a customer base that is connected to it, to them and the ability of actually seeing 
relatively low-hanging fruit at the beginning um, of opportunities to, to use transformation to improve that relationship, I thought was really exciting. So that's what um, the main reason that I was attracted to Lloyd's. Yeah, I think we're, we're going to be talking about some of those those ideas uh, in, in the future. I mean, Lloyd's a 250-year-old bank, I guess, with 30 million customers. There are, there are things they, they need to think about when looking at, at innovation, which, which kind of brings me to Teresa, yeah. which, which RBS, a 350-year-old bank. <laughs> I mean, I thought it was interesting. You were there for over 10 years, kind of at that period of immense change at RBS, um, you know, the the fallout from from the crash, you know, um, how did the that bank? I mean, what RBS NatWest now? We can't mention uh, Royal Bank of Scotland anymore. What was that period like? Well, I love that you said immense change because <laughs> <laughs> sometimes it felt like a roller coaster, you know. But when you consider a roller coaster, the ups and the downs and the loop the loops, they're all good teachers. Mm-hmm. So, learnt a lot. From an innovation perspective Mm. and product innovation in particular, there were and are some constants, marvellous customer focus, first class, really high standards, strong governance, which you would expect, I guess, from a bank anyway, Um, but also sustainable innovation, something that's going to last the test of time. Everything that glitters isn't gold. We need, as a bank, say we, and banks need to give solutions, develop solutions for the longer term, for as long as they are needed by customers. Now, I accept sometimes those solutions might change in execution and features, what have you, but, you know, you have to be really, really single-minded in the sustainability aspect to my mind. But in the timing question, it is very much a before and after type story. So before recovery, the DNA was very (coughs) much in-house development. It it, it really was. At the time... um, the start of this time, I led the teams that looked after the product management, the corporate lending and deposit sets across the whole suite of product. Only one was co-developed with a third party. And I deliberately used the term third party because mm. that's that was how it was referenced. And that was the ethos because, you know, it, it was different. Um, cloud was unknown. Mm. And in fact, it was all it's a bit a of, dirty word. It was a fog, <laughs> darling. It was a fog and we should mm. be, you know, should be approached with mm. caution. And I'm not being funny. APIs were probably something that weren't, weren't known much beyond the, the IT team. Uh, my own sort of personal API revelation was I was at a conference and somebody started talking about APIs. And I texted my brother because my brother is, um, has worked for many, many years with technology, architecture and stacks. And I said, what on earth is an API? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, so, so, so that was that. But, and then as part of this journey, I became less close to product development because I went off and I led global customer propositions and engagement programs. Then later on, when I came back alongside, because this is the after side of the story, I sat alongside the Pay It team and Pay It, as people know, is, is the NatWest PISP open banking payment. Mm. And because I've been away, the contrast for me anyway was really stark. The change in attitude between partnerships, between merger and acquisition as well. The fog had cleared with regard to what, cloud. What, clear, what cleared that fog? I think it was, you know, when something something is, is new and sounds a little bit scary and very complicated and very risky, you know, and these are long-standing organisations with many, many customers. All things banks It's love. like, whoa. <laughs> it's like, what is that all about? You know, have we got control? Will it fall over? So, so I think a lot of those, that over time, you get more comfortable with things, you dig deeper, you understand better. APIs were understood as well. 
the risk team, the role of the risk team completely changed. Mm. Risk, we used to be, God, you know, they're just going to say no to everything. Whereas on the before and after type story, they were very much around the table hoping to shape the solutions. Mm. You know, so that, that, that was very, very different. Changing culture as well, incubation labs, hackathons, global scouting teams. And I think it's brought us to very much where we are today because I believe that within banks there's this discernible desire to learn, adapt and improve. And I think that you know, that's my reflection of that time when I was at NatWest, or mm. RBS as it was then. But I think that's actually true of many banks. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Yeah, it it, is, it has been an interesting past decade when the fog has cleared for, not everyone, but if you know the pockets, pocket pockets where it where it matters. Um, so, Alessandra, I'm going to go back to you because the, the, this is touching on something you said to me a few weeks ago, which I thought was quite interesting, which is um, that banks need to go back to the Middle Ages. So, I'm not going yeah. to go any further than that. I want you to uh, to explain what you mean by that. Well, if you think about how banking evolved, so uh, banking initially started up in Genoa and the, in the Middle Ages and companies, uh, there was a banker and there was the customer and they were facing each other. And uh, they usually men, they usually knew each other, they usually uh, had long histories. And the objective of the banker at that point was, what does my customer need? And how can I provide it to them in a way that is secure and that I can make money from it? Um, as banking evolved and as the industrial revolution kicked off and so on, we, the bank started creating products and they started creating very discrete products with, that were not sold by the banker, but they were sold by an agent of the bank, the bank manager, the clerk, et cetera, et cetera. So what happened is that the limits of flexibility that the provider of the service had towards the bank decreased, and it became very much selling a product, selling something off the shelf. And as, as banking evolved, technology evolved, this continued. In the bank, uh, the, the computer bank of the 70s and, and uh, 60s, 50s till 90s, was again doing that, but with a computer deciding instead of a human being. I think what we're going with in the digital age is this ability uh, to actually create a product that is perfectly customized to the customer's needs. And it's done in a way that it can, it, the parameters of the product can be adapted to the customer, but more importantly, through the open banking APIs that Teresa was talking about, we, will, we know the customer a lot better than, the, than we ever did in the past as bankers. Sorry, I said we, they uh, <laughs> did in the past. And I think it is possible right now to create a bespoke solution that is very, very similar to the bespoke solution that was created by the Bank of the Middle Ages. So the model for the Bank of the Future is actually the Bank of the Past. Uh, and I think that is that is something that uh, very much focuses on delivering something that is perfectly customized for you. So if you think about the future and technology, technology is changing everything we touch, but it's also changing um, other industries, uh, for example, with, when they talk about the future of retail, they have this perspective that you're going to go into a store, that you're going, the body's going to be scanned, you look, choose the clothes that you want, they, you see them on your body, and then something prints them in the back or sews them. When for is you. that going to oh, happen? I'm waiting for that to happen. <laughs> I, I, think, give it a, I think by the end of the year, that's what. It is. <laughs> uh, but you know, that's the ultimate thing. But if you think about it, in the Middle Ages, when you went to buy a suit or a dress or a pair of shoes, you weren't buying a size nine dress or. A, 32 waist uh, uh, pair of trousers, you are buying the, the, the trousers for Alessandro and the shoes for Alessandro. And the same will happen in the future and the same should happen for the banking services. Mm -hmm. I don't want to get a bank account. I want to get Alessandro's bank account. Mm -hmm. so that's what I meant by bank of the Middle Ages, by the Middle Ages. How do you do that for 30 million customers though? 
is to focus on the outcome and to use technology to be able to make this as bespoke as possible. So don't say our pricing goes from this range to this range, but look at overall what the customer needs are and create a pricing that matches, that brings together not only the lending product you're offering, but also the fact that the customer has been saving with you and also their pensions are sold through you and also that they use you for payments or sending money back home. Mm. And have an ecosystem, have a product that it designs that brings all of these things together in a way that is uh, not possible, not done today, but it's definitely possible. And what you do, you create a one-to-one relationship with the customer that is very hard, very uh, totally unnecessary to walk away from because everything is bespoke. Mm. Everything is done specifically for the customer. So the customer is getting such a good service from you that they would not have the need to go away to find somebody else to supply it with them, to, to supply it to them. Uh, so that's the that's the holy grail. Mm. And technology-wise, it's possible. And the bank of the future will look like that. It will be a product that is endlessly customized. Someday, someday, <laughs> from your mouth to God's ears, as my grandmother used to say. <laughs> so, Teresa, I'm gonna gonna say what um what you said to me a few weeks ago, which I thought was interesting. And we've already mentioned the word, the L word, uh, earlier on in our discussion, legacy. And you said, I don't like it when people bash legacy. I need you to explain yourself. Happy to. <laughs> so hold tight. Um, if we think about it, yeah, the core tenant of banking is money movement and management, or if you prefer payables, receivables, cash management, yeah, depending on your vent. In the UK alone, there's 36 billion payments every year, many of which go through legacy. So that's good. And it reflects society. Those payments reflect society because they are... They could be, you know, sweeping payments going, going to your, your customised bank account, to use Alessandro's example, could be mortgage payments, pension payments. For corporate customers, it, they could be underpinning complex cash management structures and international trade. So they're supporting everybody. I talked earlier about sustainable innovation. Well, crikey, legacy ticks that box. You know, it's been around a long time and it's proved to be adaptable might not be as adaptable as everybody wants it to be, but it's been here a while and it's adaptable. It's, it's, you know, it has proven itself. And with that, and you think about all of the payments and all of the people, legacy has earned customer trust and confidence. Your money is where you expect it to be. It's safe and it's accessible. And banks and their platforms, their legacy platforms included, are crucial to the country and to our neighbours as well. You know, they're tested for resilience and shockproofing. So with legacy, with all of that, with legacy comes huge responsibility. And I don't like it when banks are bashed because I think that's sometimes not, not recognised <laughs> or it's it's undervalued because it, it, it comes a lot. Now, I'm not a complete idiot, OK? <laughs> um, of course I know it needs to transform course it does and in fact there was a bottom line survey conducted tail end of last year there are 300 banks the predominance of which i think were uk and european and they said what's your biggest focus and 64 percent said oh digital digital strategy and 47 percent says our biggest challenge is legacy so you know Mm -hmm. we we are there but it's challenging because it's complex and tangled and crucial it bears that responsibility and any piece of transformation in that space, it has to be controlled, safe, and it has to be fireproof. You know, you you do you need to it needs to be a, to my mind a slow and steady path, or at least at first. 
So yes, there's work to do, but legacy has got value. It's reliable, it's resilient, and it engenders customer trust, and that's gold dust. I think. I, I think. Can, can I step in? Can I step go in? Go for it. Go for it, Alexander. <laughs> <laughs> so, Teresa, I agree with you, but I think the challenge that I've seen so far in lots of big organizations is that there's legacy of what, and then there's legacy of how. Okay, mm. so the what you described about paying mortgages and the billions of transactions that happen and so on and so forth—that's that's the what is happening. It's the how that is yeah. the challenge. And the how can be addressed by technology in very creative ways. Now, we have creative ways in the good sense of the word, not a negative <laughs> sense. And, and the only thing that is, I think it's missing right now is that, that ability for us to feel the comfort and confidence that we feel in legacy products for these new products. And I think that is the role of the third component of this discussion that we had, because we had the banks, we had the customers, and then the, the people who set the rules. And the people who set the rules are the ones that give us confidence that things actually are safe. And that's the regulator. So the regulator is going to be playing a very big role, I think, in the future of financial services, much bigger than it has ever, ever has had. And they will have to be open to new ideas and um, not think that the way things are done in the past is the way to do it. It's, it's the outcome that counts, not the way you do it, it's what you do. And I, um, I would agree with you. I'm a big fan of regulation. I mean, it's not a popular thing to say, so I'm sorry, but I am a big fan of regulation, um, you know, providing it's proportionate and right, you know, and all the rest of those things. But I, I do think also that the regulators get a bit of a bad rep because I do believe that actually, that in the main, that they are forward thinking. The pace of change is such that, like, you know, it's, it's hard to keep up. I get mm. that. And I know that they themselves would want to be faster, but. I do think that they're forward thinking and I do believe firmly that they are outcome focused as well, particularly actually in the consumer space. I mm. think they're especially strong. Yeah, no, very much. I mean, I thought a lot of people forget the regulators there to most of the time protect protect the consumer. So you need seatbelts in cars, as we were talking about before <laughs> before we came on. <laughs> uh, let's, let's be fair, though. They're, they're not always like that. Okay? So yeah. They are trying yeah. They are trying to. They are to. trying to. Mm. They're desperately trying to, but sometimes they come down, uh, and you said never to say anything negative, so and I won't <laughs> mention A any names, regulator that exists on the planet somewhere. <laughs> Possibly not here. Some of these regulators <laughs> are actually doing weird things mm. uh, that are not good. I mean, the uh, regulation for, uh, with an end on itself is not good. I mm. think you need to look at the bigger picture, and many of them are, but sorry. And, and actually, on that point, there is something um, that... I'm in print on this, so you know I I, I can say this. Um, I think that when it comes to some of the forthcoming proposed regulation around confirmation of payee, for example, you know, pr be careful. You can't, after my mind, it's very dangerous to just go publishing figures without context. Um, you know, that's not doing. Mm banks any good is not doing the financial services system any good you know and, th and there are other facets there but but yes sometimes there are unintended consequences and you need to avoid those mm. i think it's interesting yeah. the conversation we've just had about both legacy and regulations very much fits in with the theme of this podcast because i think it's very easy to get on stage at a conference and say the problem is legacy the problem is regulation you know it's just it's black and white when the st the actual story is much more nuanced and complicated yeah 
No, yeah, that's interesting. So uh, yeah, we're getting we're getting uh running a little bit out of time, but I wanted to ask you guys both a final question. I'll start with Teresa and I'll go to Alessandro. And this is I kind of wanted you to also bring in your personal personal views as well. Um, what do you think? What is your definition of a bank that just works? So I'll put my Dr. Johnson hat on. I think he was the dictionary man, wasn't he, yes. Dr. Johnson? <laughs> yes. Um, so for me, a bank that just works is a bank that makes it easier for customers to manage their money. And I take Alessandro's piece as well about customization as well and like you know, doing it for the person. A bank that works isn't just about platforms, ATIs, connectivity and interoperability. Of course, they're important, but it's not all just about that. It's about a laser customer focus and really high quality end-to-end -end customer journeys. It's about trust. And for many, it's an invisible bank. It's something that just ticks away in the background, mm -hmm. you know, and then it doesn't really change until there's a change in the status quo. Either there's a corporate event or a life event that means you need something different. And at that point, the bank has to be available, engaged and offer you the best solution and the best service, because more likely than not, that is going to be your hour of need It's going to be urgent to you. So th that for me is would be a definition of a good bank. Interesting that that term invisible comes up a lot. I think it's being a bank is like parenting a teenager, I think. <laughs> might be personal experience um alessandro what do you think what what do you what is your definition well, of a bank that works well the, the invisible bank is a good definition i agree with everything Teresa said um uh, we i actually tried to take it a step further i've, I've worked with an organization to actually to put together what we call the bank of the future and this is kind of hypothesizes the user experience because the bank of the future has to there's the, there's the principles of, yes, focusing on customer outcomes and customer needs and not selling products and so on. But what does it look like is really important. So I think um, in, in an environment where you can actually see your bank as a being in a dialogue with you that actually tells you, suggests options to you and gives you a perspective of what's available in the market. And more importantly, you can trust what this bank is telling you there and then, I think is at the core of the bank of the future. And this invisible bank that lives underneath the surface of the stuff that you want to achieve. And, and this video that I put, actually you can find it, I think if you search online for it, um, called the Bank of the Future, I think shows you how a normal person could actually use this bank and using technology of today to create something that is completely new. Um, again, it's, it's based on outcomes. Uh, and that's, that's the invisibility is when you think about as a person, I want to get to somewhere and I don't have to worry how, but that I get to what I want to do in a way that is safe and secure and financially not too onerous. I think that's what the Bank of the Future should be delivering. Excellent. Wonderful. Teresa, Alessandro, thank you so much for launching Functional Banking Magic. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to part three of the launch of Functional Banking Magic. Once again, I'm Liz Lumley, Deputy Editor of The Banker Magazine, and we are looking at the magic in a bank that works. And we have two wonderful guests with us today who have spent a long time in the financial services industry working for institutions and banks and and themselves and organizations, but um, I should really stop talking because they can talk about themselves much better. So let me turn it over to Leda. Please introduce yourself. 
Thank you so much for having me here today. I'm Leda Gliptis. I am the Chief Client Officer of 10X Banking, a cloud native core banking provider. And I tend to describe myself as a recovering banker uh, because I spent about 20 years on that side of the fence before moving um, onto the software provision. And I find myself saying we and meaning bankers a lot. Yes. <laughs> so I, my recovery has a long, a long way to go. And I love the topic. I love what what the angle you're taking here. It's mm -hmm. about time we talked about this. And um, it's really, really exciting to be with you again, Liz, and to actually share a stage, so to speak, for the first time with Lou. Oh. I have a, a slight fangirling thing going We all have a fangirling thing for Lou. <laughs> I have to say, I apologise. We were we were going, you were going to share a stage with Lou, but she's been trapped in Scotland because of the horrible weather we've been having in the UK. But Lou, please introduce yourself to our audience. Oh. Oh, thanks, Liz, and lovely to virtually meet you. We will eventually uh, meet in the same place. And apologies, I am stuck in Edinburgh. It's a beautiful place to be stuck in, so uh, me and the pooch. So I'm Lou Smith. I think I'm about to enter recovery. Um, so I've been working in banking, which I hadn't realised until I added it up uh, in prep for this call, but it's nearly 30 years, which is actually starting to scare me. Uh, and at the moment, I'm uh, in the insurance industry, more on the complex insurance so uh, which I don't know why we call it complex um, but uh, I'm currently doing some work with uh, WTW uh, which is Willis Towers Watson previously uh, around digital trading and how we use data and I'm delighted to be here so thank you both for inviting me along. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I mean, some of the banks in, in, in both of your CVs are Barclays and BNY Mellon and, and banks in the Middle East and of course the stories, the storied Lloyd's Market. Uh, so, so Lou, I'm actually going to start with you. You know, I know when you mentioned thir 30 years in this industry, when yeah. did you start to notice a change in how the organizations you were working with started to speak about innovation? It's really funny because I was, I was thinking about this while well, I was actually talking to a friend of mine recently. And I think we started innovating when I joined, but I don't think we called it that. And I don't think we knew we were doing that. So <clears throat> I delivered one of the first UK internet banks when I started out on my career and Mr. Blobby was in the charts, <laughs> which I don't think is the best reference point. And most people have to Google it now. And I, you can see the disappointment on their faces when they actually do Google it. <laughs> for, for our international is. audience, Mr. Blobby was a children's television program, I think, uh, character. Yes, which uh, he looks exactly how he sounds. Anyway, continue. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also he was number one in the charts, which means that you're going to be even more disappointed when you listen to the song. So um, I think when I noticed the change is actually different to when we tried to change um, and, and, and letting those that I... I seem to uh, randomly talk about this on her LinkedIn all the time because <laughs> she always lets me uh, around. I think we started to see innovation in tech, innovation in process a long time ago, actually. But I think what I'm yet to see, and I know there's early uh, shoots of movement, but is more around the behaviour and the cultural and the values that that drives when you start to think about things in a digital or data way. Mm -hmm. um, because it does change boundaries, it just change hierarchy, it does change position, status, all those lovely things that lots of people have been used to for a while. Uh, and I think that's the bit, particularly if I'm called heritage side, I'm yet to really start to see um, 
the significant shifts that they've had. So I think that's what the challenges brought or the fintech innovators. So I think we've been innovating for a long time, um, but I think the challenges, and they're probably not called challenges anymore because they're not, uh, is all around that how they really started to create the cultural, how you felt the culture of customer and people when you walked into them. So probably that bit about sort of seven, eight years ago, but I think we've still got a long way to go. Mm. No, I think you made an interesting point about how the move to digital, you know, sort of changes a lot more than just the product. Uh, it, it has sort of a, a a lot of effects of changing culture and and uh, and people. And so, yeah, so I'll move over to, to Leda. You know, when, when did you f- first start kind of noticing people talk about innovation a bit differently? It's a, it's a good question. I, I had answers, as, as you say, but uh, I, I jotted down as Lou was speaking. We were doing it, but we didn't call it that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that is so true, because what is what is new about the period? We're what, what did at, you call it? Just using technology okay. to make money differently. OK. And I, and I think that's that's the shift that. The, the first wave of innovation or, or fintech engagement, whatever you want to call it, still happened under the old bracket of we're doing this. We're good at bringing technology into the mix. Into the mix. Um, and OK, there's some stuff happening faster than normal, but we will create a construct that will allow us to work out what is real, what is useful and go from there. I think the big shift came with the realization that banks weren't in control of timings anymore Mm -hmm. and weren't in controls of if. When we started our careers, there was very much a sense of the bank is choosing. And even the technologists and the startups and the new business model providers and and the people who are bringing change were coming to the table with a, please, sir, may I have some more attitude. Mm -hmm. There was an implicit agreement on all sides of the table that the bank held the ability to say yes or no Mm -hmm. and dictate timing and levels of engagement and levels of penetration of a particular technology. And it became apparent pretty quickly, actually, that the economy in a wider sense and and the innovations in e-commerce and and our engagements with anything from digital identity to gaming to the way we buy our groceries, were transforming the world so rapidly that actually the banks were losing that ability to say yes or no or to dictate timings pretty, pretty quickly. Um, I think there was definitely denial for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. But the the change was from, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll have a look at this, to intense talk of disintermediation for a really long time, to an acceptance now that a digital economy will happen with or without you. Mm-hmm. And therefore, it's not about controlling or containing it, but finding your place in it. And that hasn't been an easy transition, particularly for those of us on the inside. Um, But if you look back, it has been fairly quick. It didn't feel quick on a day to day. But looking back, it's actually a a very long distance for a pretty conservative set of institutions to cover. So I would say that realisation that this is happening with, with or without us is where the real language of change happens. So I'm going to stick with you because you you talked a bit about sort of that frustration and it didn't feel quick at the time. And also, you know, banks sort of giving up this idea that they had any sort of control over the timing, which, you know, must have been very difficult for a lot of these organizations. So you don't have to specifically name names, but is there a particular incident that you can remember where there was like a barrier to what you wanted to do? How long have we Pick one. (laughs) Um, I'll pick pick two uh, and I'll be quick, but I think they are quite telling. Early on in my career, we didn't call it innovation yet, but it was definitely 
on that trajectory. We brought a, a brilliant idea of using some new to the bank at the time capabilities to solve a particular problem in a way that would allow us to switch off a couple of legacy systems. It would enhance regulatory provision, reduce our cost um, footprint, increase speed to market. And of course, the fact that we had done all that homework shows that the bank expects you to prove that you have a right to continue breathing and doesn't trust <laughs> you to make those judgments, right? You have to make a business case for everything. So we came in with a business case and the chap who ran that particular side of the tech business, because of course it was the CTO for the business line, right? Mm -hmm. And how, how it used to be paired, said to me, um, I put the system in before you were born, young lady. Ooh, did he actually use the term young lady? Yeah. And I was a lot younger at the time, wow. right? I was a lot younger wow. at the time. I was in my late 20s. So we're talking about almost 20 years ago, right? Mm. But still, mm. 28 is too old for a system. Let's <laughs> just go with that. Um, same organization, and you probably can work out who it was <laughs> by doing the math. When I resigned, some of the senior decision makers said, but, but resisting you is part of the process. And it was like, well, you know what? No gives me power. <laughs> um, and and, and I, I sort of understand the human side of all of that. But but culturally, mm. uh, what Lou described as the biggest, the biggest obstacle, the habits we've picked up, not even the, the conscious choices. And I have some hope because as we're getting older, the people that we served in the trenches with are also getting older. Mm. And they have senior positions by by design by now. Mm -hmm. And that demographic change is making a difference. Interesting. So, Lou, Lou I'm going to pass it over to you. I mean, to you, to end it, I'm, I'm sure that what Leda was talking about maybe sort of jogged your memory for a bit. Do you have any, any sure. examples you can you can share with us? I'm still recovering from the young lady. <laughs> so am I. <laughs> hey, somebody called me sweetheart like last year. Oh, yeah, wow. Wow. You just... <laughs> And yeah, even the pooch has run off. But I think in terms of you just it's it's interesting because again when I was reflecting on this question and when you think about activity that we've all driven, none of it has actually been really about the activity, if that makes sense. We've all I mean, whenever you're changing anything, a business model, a process or whatever, or a technology system, you can kind of handle that. Yeah, they're difficult, yeah, you hit hit issues, because you expect those issues. And I think, and again, without naming that, because they're in, it's actually in every part of um, the career um, journey for me, and particularly in terms of all the organisations I've worked for, the hardest bits have been those behavioural challenges. And they range from everything around, um, you know, comments on experience, the one that later picked up on, but also around the whose idea was it? <laughs> You know, yep. well, UK, you, you know, and then desperately trying to make somebody else feel like it was their idea so that you could influence them to move forward. And we've all been in those conversations. Politics is fun. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Convincing I mean, them that it's their idea if it works, but yours if it fails. Exactly. I mean, and how many times have we had that coaching conversation where you have to make it feel like it's their idea? And actually, no, none of that is, is right because it actually doesn't matter. And I think... When I reflect on this conversation, all the frustrating times have been is around some of that stuff, which actually makes no difference to anybody other than people in specific types of roles. And that's the bit that is the hardest bit to change. And I think later came 
it also mentioned, but I'm really, really hopeful and also confident actually that next generation leaders or future leaders or these people coming through, they just want to tolerate that. Mm. And actually they're challenging it daily, but and and not the same techniques that maybe we did use, you know, I, I kind of reflect sometimes think, oh, gosh, did I do that? Did I actually just try to make it with somebody else's idea because it was easier? And you, I mean, I've and, done that. You're absolutely yeah, right. I've done yeah. that. Yeah, and I still do probably sometimes or I dance around things to try and avoid it. And what I'm hopeful is when I see next generation leaders, future leaders or people who just won't accept that is actually they're challenging those boundaries on a constant basis and they probably don't know that they are. Um, but I think that for me has always been the frustrating moment is when we hit that behavioural piece of let's also make it smaller so that it does it so that we can get going and then we can kind of build it up so that like nobody notices and then we kind of take the business model by stealth or let's in, you know let's influence somebody by saying it was their idea you know it's so it's, true we've used, all, we've used I, all those techniques. I work with someone who um, I don't know. If, if he wants me to quote him, I'll find out and, and, and attribute it because I, I steal this line a lot. He says, nothing is ever released in a big bank, but some things escape. And it's this idea, exactly <laughs> what Lou just that. said, make <laughs> things smaller mm. so that they can play within people's tolerance levels and, and risk levels and fears and personal ego issues and then piece them together at the other end and go, aren't you great for having done this thing? Look at you. Uh, but, it, but it is exactly that same mindset of, you know, nothing, nothing's ever released, but some things escape. You make them small enough so that they get through the line. Yeah. I mean, I wanted, I wanted to, it kind of leads me to my next question. Both of you have used the phrase, it wasn't called innovation when I when I started or when when I when it was sort of noticing a difference and I've had a lot of conversations with people about the role of the chief innovation officer and the role of the innovation lab at banks and that's that's making it big um and you know I think it was it was it played a very strong role a number of years ago in opening that door which had previously been closed at a lot of banks but do you think we're getting to the point now that now that we call it innovation does that department get in the way of actual real? Yeah, look at Leda's just she's nodding. She's nodding. I have the sad yeah. face of someone who has had that job. Mm. Um, I was super excited when I was first given a, an innovation hat um, because I genuinely believed that what stood between us and really accelerating that process was the tools to, to test and learn and deploy quickly. I genuinely believed in the message that, you know, actually a place to do this um, in a way that won't break the rest of the bank is what stands in the way of us in progress. But it wasn't that. Um, and fundamentally, what the innovation department gave the banks largely was an opportunity to claim column inches, keep up with the Joneses, mm -hmm. um, tick certain boxes for stakeholders, employers, but the real business always happened elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So you either were in an innovation department that actually saw things go live, and and I will tell you that the scars I have from trying to get something out of the lab and into the main bank were yep. absolutely horrific. So many people have those stories. Yeah, every um, single bank. Or you go down the path of doing truly futuristic stuff like some of my friends who put like a fridge on Kubernetes and you're like, great, but why? 
It's like, well, because because we can. Because it looks cool. <laughs> and, and it's a question of, are you solving problems that might occur in 30 years' time, in which case the lab is a great place. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't suit my personality. Or are you dealing with things that are real right now, which is what most innovation labs do. And it's not the teams in the labs that mm. stand in the way. It's the fact that a lot of the banks consider the work kind of done. Yeah. I was once told by one of my employers that I was their canary in the mine and that was my job. <laughs> they were waiting for you to die. Exactly. <laughs> well, I start gasping for breath. We're going to have to stitch together all the phrases ladies had in her career, like in a water. So young lady, canary in the mind. Oh, look, I, I, have a, I have it's a little booklet. Wordle, I have a little booklet of things I never thought I would hear at work, which I started when I worked in the Middle East. Um, wow. but, but I've actually realised a, lo- a lot of it has been done elsewhere. <laughs> but yeah, I do, I, do, I do think that the innovation lab construct gets in the way not because of the people not because of yeah the there's lots of good people but yeah huge amounts of talent mm. and ability to sort of hack the system and get things through mm. it's the mindset of the bank that goes i'll put you right there tell me if you find anything <laughs> yeah. so the way i want to i want to hear your your views on it yeah i mean again i i agree as i tend to agree with you guys um i i think in when innovation labs get in the way of innovation is when they think they're the only people who own innovation. Um, And that sounds slightly odd, but I think, you know, innovation labs, teams, whatever, they've done a great job at getting the conversation going. Mm -hmm. Um, And they have, because as I say, we were doing stuff. We didn't call it that. Could we have done more stuff? Absolutely. Could we have done stuff quicker? Absolutely. And we could spend hours on talking, well, why didn't we? And would you go down that path again? Probably not. You'd look at other ways, but hindsight's beautiful. I think what these teams did or what these conversations did, as I say, they at least brought something to the forefront and got us all thinking about doing stuff or looking out there. However, they were never enabled to be successful. There's very few examples of them being brilliant because they went down this, you know, let's all have you know, hacking things or whatever we called it and let's all sponsor a mentor, whatever. And why on earth we thought just because we had a lab in an organisation that was huge that we were the best people to sponsor, people that were trying to innovate and, you know, do things differently to how we were doing it. So I don't understand what we brought to the table in some of that instances. But then others, we gave platforms, you know, we... We go visibility and all of that's great stuff. However, I think where it gets really difficult is when people think they own something. And it was the same as the customer experience officer or the customer service team. You know, so that's the only team that manages the experience of a customer or the service of a customer. And of course it's not. But the ones that work really brilliantly are where you actually really focus on the behavioural change those things bring. I mean, I saw, you know, again, not naming names, but I saw a wonderful leader in uh, India who didn't focus on calling things what they were. She actually really focused on how do I help an org- a team of, you know, two, three, 4,000 people think about things in an entrepreneurial way mm. or how do I actually empower them to actually make decisions about, the work that they do every day. And interestingly, the most innovative teams I've seen are in operations. And the reason why is 100%. because they, 
they absolutely focus on where it doesn't work for a customer today. So mm -hmm. you really focus on the cultural behaviour change there or the things you want people to do or feel free to do. They really start to hope, well, actually, that's the thing that needs to change. It might not even be tech. It might be about stopping stuff, rearranging stuff, looking at a process in a different way. So I think it's when labs think they own the only conversation about right. innovation and I totally agree. I'm doing that. heart signs while you speak because I couldn't <laughs> agree signs. more. And you know, I, I will name a name because we, we very often say the bad things but not the good things. So when I was at BNY Mellon, um, I got the chief operating officer to agree to the idea of a time bank. And what we did was we went to the operations teams and said, anything you do to improve your processing times, to improve client efficiency, oh, however small, we promise you that we will not translate the time efficiency to FTE saves. We promise you that you will get that time back to do whatever the hell you want with it. Personal development, a team picnic, or time to invest in enhancing the product or doing something creative that nobody told you you could do it before. It was a runaway success. Mm. And it actually resulted in all green KPIs for the teams quarter on quarter for like five years till about I left, new product innovations, increased revenue, cost savings, and the highest employee retention score we had ever had in those offices. And it all came with, you will not be penalized by losing <laughs> yeah. Bobby down the hall. Yeah. Um, and we that's all we did. And actually, some of the innovations, as Lou says, weren't actually big enough to have gone through the decision-making that a bank requires. Mm -hmm. They were changing a process slightly, changing the sequencing of things, yeah. using system A rather than system B. Uh, but the only thing we had to give was that protection that this won't come back to haunt you. Mm. There's, there's genius in small things. Yeah, exactly. So I, I, I want to end. I know we've talked a little bit about frustrations and stuff, but I want to end on a, on a happy note. You know, you just told a happy story, which is good. So I'm going to have a final question for both of you. I'll start with Lou. Um, what, what is your definition of a bank that just works? And you can, you can pull from your personal experience as well. <laughs> I'm not going to say everything I did, please, because that would be really silly. <laughs> and actually, now, as, as you both know, I always look back and go, oh, God, why did I do that? Um, I think for me, it's, I, was, I was reflecting on this again. And, you know, why did we all move to some of the uh, challenger banks? I keep calling them challenger. I've got to stop doing that. Um, but we, we did because it just felt nice, didn't it? We were all really, you know, quite chuffed when we could unfreeze and freeze our cards on our apps when mm. we were talking to our mates then. But I think what it all bought was this, it just worked. It just felt nice to use. It kind of, you wanted to use it. You wanted to check stuff. The other bit, it actually made sense to you. We talked about transactions in a way that meant something rather than, in numeric code and you could actually understand what it was that you were doing and then I thought about well where doesn't it work and it's when it feels weighty and what I mean by that is it just like oh it just feels difficult or it feels that you're battling something and I don't think anybody's massively cracked this yet which I know that doesn't sound particularly positive. I think there's lots of great examples where, you know, the onboarding bit's lovely. You use it every day. It's great. It does what it does every day. And it's, I understand it. But it's when it starts to get now, and I, and I think Lady talked about some of this in a recent 
uh, podcast, particularly around open banking, is when it really starts to feel like it's part of what I do. I don't think about it as managing money or managing finances, but it's around the actions that I take every single day that matter to me. That's part of that whole thing. And it isn't weighty. I'm not battling it. You know, if I want to make a payment, if I want to borrow, lend, whatever, save. But you're not talking to me in a language that's reserved for the few. But mm. actually, it's in a way that is, it's, it feels like I've got access to the stuff that I need, depending on what I'm doing. But also, if I make a mistake, because I will and I do, let, let's just recognise that's what, a couple of mistakes in, what, 30, 40 years? Not, you know, something I should be penalised for the rest of my life. And and, and this is going to sound really emotional. I don't mean it to be, but it's the only way I can illustrate because I talked about this in a podcast recently and I haven't realised, but it's probably shaped every part of my value system and what I do, but I might never have, all, have explained it in a way. And therefore it might have affected some of the decisions or some of the way in which I've led teams or whatever. But like, I care so deeply about how we make financial services more open and more inclusive and get people more access to financial services. Mm. Because I've seen how it affects people in my life. Like my brother lost his daughter 30 years ago. And, you know, at that point in time, he never thought about his financial history or credit history as you wouldn't. Yet he's, he's always been in a job. He's always built his career and whatever else. He was a policeman. He's done all this stuff, uh, largely in social uh, type of roles. But even today, 30 years on, he still can't get a mortgage because of the decisions he took or what was going on in his life 30 years ago. My mom lost all of her money in the financial crash because it was unit trust and that was the money her parents left her. And you look at all the friends we've had through the pandemic who we couldn't get cash to quickly enough. And that may have affected their small businesses or their, you know, their home or whatever. And it just shouldn't happen. Mm. And that's where, for me, is less about a bank, but more about financial services, how we make it more open, how we make it more embedded, how we look forward, not just backwards, and get more people access to financial services and it doesn't feel weighty and I think there's lots of brilliant examples there's some incredible stuff and we talk about them all the time you know I even think with the work that Chase UK are doing you know Heather Walsh into the UK market I think is a great example probably a worrying one for the heritage organizations but I think there's so much stuff that is happening that is really good I just hope now we're at an inflection point where we start to bring that together and we just get more people access to what they need and it feels easy to do it. That's kind of where I am. So massively long answer and I am so sorry, but it's I just, something that I care really deeply about. I want to apologise to Lita that you have to follow that. <laughs> you should, because that's an impossibly hard thing to follow and, and, and I want to start with, I love you, Lou. Um, I don't think you should apologise for being emotional. I wish more of us were. I think... All I can do is is add what does that look like from the inside, right? Mm. Because implicit in what Lou described, and I couldn't add a word to that, is that there is um, a power dynamic in the relationships 
service consumers have had with their banks. And it's not just in retail. It actually translates all the way through. Mm -hmm. The banking institution, the financial services provider has cultivated a relationship of one-sided power. Everything from the terms and conditions that you know you're going to get caught out somewhere to um, just the, the dynamic of a service consumer, be it a corporate or a retail consumer, is always tilted. But actually, if we stop and think, life happens, money is an enabler for that. And we can go down a path of whether we're doing ourselves any services or not, but I won't. If money is an enabler and financial services institutions are the enabler to the enabler, we really have misinterpreted our position in this equation. We're not the centre of the solar system. And that power dynamic suited us well enough as an industry. And we got away with it for a long time. But actually, we are <coughs> the intermediary to the intermediary for people's life, business, financial mm. infrastructure and all the rest of it. So fundamentally, financial services either are of service or are in the way. And what's yeah, a bank that yeah. works? It's a bank that realizes yeah. that. Yeah. I think there's two things you've said later today that are massively important and that not waiting for you is really key. You know, I think the organisations that think anything's waiting for them, you're wrong, and I love that. And secondly, it, and it's a follow-on, is that control. The control isn't there anymore, and that controls back into the consumer. And I think those are two things that really are important as we move forward. <coughs> it's wonderful. Um, I'm going to steal those as well, by the way. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> This has been. I mean, we could go on and on and on. We could we could have a three hour podcast. Um, I want to thank both of you, Lou and Leda. Thank you very much. And thank you for ho- hopefully, Scotland will, will, you. will free you at some point. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Functional Banking Magic, which runs monthly out of the Banker. You can listen to this podcast on thebanker.com, Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcast fix. If you would like to be a guest on Functional Banking Magic, you can contact Liz Lumley at elizabeth.lumley at ft.com.